All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You may be seated. My body, my choice. It's one of today's popular slogans used whenever any one of us feels that our personal autonomy is being threatened. We don't want anyone else's beliefs or opinions to shape what we do with our own body, so we affirm it's my body and I can do what I want with it. And of course, there's an element of truth in that. But maybe most of all, that slogan is used to justify our views on sexuality. In our culture, I would say the prevailing morality of sexuality is we can do whatever we want as long as we're not hurting somebody. If you're paying attention, I think that's what the world believes about sexuality. Anything is fair game as long as nobody is hurt by our imperfect definitions of what hurts people. As long as nobody's hurt, What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. We are free to do what we want. That is our world's view, and that sentiment is not new. That sentiment goes back to the days of Paul and the church in Corinth. The pagan moral philosophy of Paul's day was, I can do whatever I want with my body. I am permitted to do as I wish. Whatever I desire sexually, I should be able to fulfill. All appetites should be satisfied. There's a well-known quote from Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero from about 100 BC. And he states in this quote that it would be very strict and severe to restrict young boys from having prostitutes. That would be too rigid, too legalistic. One by the name of Athenaeus described sexual practice of many men in that time. We keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for daily concubinage, but wives in order to produce children legitimately they have a trustworthy guardian of our domestic property. That represented the ethic at the time. What you do with your body 
especially sexually, was largely seen as inconsequential or bodies or tools to be used to fulfill our appetites. And I find it interesting that whenever that view is espoused, it always ends up seeming as if women are objects to be treated as men for their own pleasure. The tragedy is that this kind of thinking had made its way into the church of God. So here in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul wants to point the church in a different direction, a better way of thinking about their bodies and what they're to do with them. Paul wants to point out that the Corinthians were not free to use their bodies however they wanted, but rather who we are in Christ determines how we use our bodies. I would say that's the main point of this whole passage, that who we are in Christ determines how we use our bodies. Not just our personal sense of freedom, but who we are in Jesus Christ and how God has made us to be, that determines what we should do with our bodies and how we should use them. And Paul's purpose and his overall goal in this section is to uh, urge the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality. Verse 18 kind of sums up Paul's goal. Flee from sexual immorality. But... In doing so, Paul creates, uh, not creates, he communicates a divine theology of the body that goes beyond just what we do sexually. Uh, Paul here kind of creates a whole, again, I, I shouldn't use the word creates, he's not creating it on his own. He is reiterating a godly, communicating a divine theology of how we use our bodies and what we do with them. So he's applying it to sex, but it's bigger than that. It's how do we view our bodies in light of who God is and who God has made us. And what I want to do this morning is... Uh, unpack that. My goal this morning is not to communicate all the ways in which our world is broken sexually that would take us far too long and get far too complicated and not be profitable for us. What I want to do instead is rather build up a Christian theology of bodies, of our bodies, and how they should be used, and specifically in sexuality. It's simply, I think, safe to say we live in a sexually broken world But scripture and who we are in Christ has an answer for that. I want to build a healthy understanding of God's view of how we should use our bodies. To do that, we'll point out three general truths that Paul teaches regarding our bodies and our positions in Christ and who we are. It will teach us that we're not actually free to do whatever our appetites desire, but rather should be conformed to life with God. Who we are in Christ determines how we use our bodies. The first truth about our bodies and sexuality is found in verses 12 through 14. Verses 12 through 14, Paul teaches that our bodies are intended for heaven. Verses 12 through 14, our bodies are intended for heaven. There's the first uh, point that Paul will make, and the first truth about our bodies, how they should be used. We need to know as Christians, that our bodies are intended for heaven. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So here we have Paul beginning with a a couple of slogans that were commonly known at the time, commonly used by the culture and by the church. And you can see that they're slogans, they're they're 
identified with quotation marks in your Bibles. Now, you need to know that in the original Greek text, there were no quotation marks. We didn't have those helpful markers. So those are interpretations that will become important in a moment. So your English Bibles provide quotation marks to indicate to you that these are popular slogans that were thrown around that Paul is going to interact with. And the first slogan was, all things are lawful for me. All things are permissible. That was the prevailing moral worldview. I can do what I want. I'm free to do what I want with my body. And notice, Paul's going to interact with this, but he's not going to outright refute it. He's not going to go explicitly say, well, that's wrong. Why? Because Paul has a good theology of freedom in Christ. So he doesn't want to just outright deny freedom. Paul understands we are not under the old covenant law, that in Christ we have been freed. So he has a good understanding of Christian liberty and conscience that dictates what we do. And we should be dictated by our conscience and by liberty in Jesus to do what our consciences allow. We are not under the law, we are under freedom. So Paul won't aggressively or outright refute that statement, all things are lawful for me, because in a sense, under Christ they are. But he's going to push back. He's going to poke holes in the way they're using that freedom. He's going to say, all things are lawful for me, but are all things helpful? You may be free to do whatever you want. God might not strike you down with a bolt of lightning as soon as you do it, but that doesn't make it wise. There's no law against going to Arby's five times a week. That is not illegal, but it doesn't make it wisdom. There's no prohibition scripturally against smoking cigarettes. Doesn't mean it's a good idea. There's no law against how much time you spend on Facebook. But is it wise? You can put all your savings into cryptocurrency. That doesn't make it a good idea. You can listen to country music. It's the difference between thou shalt not and I wouldn't do that if I were you. Not everything's good for you. And Paul says we shouldn't be dominated by anything. That's the second way he contends with this slogan. Paul doesn't have what we have in our modern day understanding of addiction, but he's using a similar concept here. We should not be dominated by any behavior, beholden to it, enslaved to it. So we can again use the analogy of smoking or social media or fast food. You're free to do these things, but do not be beholden to them. Do not be enslaved by them. Do not be dominated by your behaviors. Can you go without unhealthy foods? Can you go without looking at your phone? Can you go without smoking? Like, are you enslaved to these things. And that's what Paul wants to encourage the Corinthians to think about. You have been set free in Christ, so do not put yourself back in bondage to be dominated by any behavior, particularly sinful behavior. This is who we are in Jesus Christ. We are not enslaved by any sins. Jesus says this in John 8.34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If you make sinful behavior a practice, you're enslaved to it. And Paul's saying, you guys say you're free, 
and yet you're working yourself back into bondage by your own freedoms. There's a sense in which we as Christians should be free of our freedoms. That we don't exercise our liberty and our privilege and our freedom in such a way that we are in bondage to it. We'll see later. We're free, but in a specific way, we're set free to obey God. Not set free to be in bondage to our appetites. Paul wants the Corinthians to think more high-mindedly about their bodies. And that's why he refutes their slogan in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, there's an important interpretive question here. said earlier, our English Bibles put the quotes here. You'll find that English Bibles put the quotation marks in different places. So, for example, the ESV puts the quotation mark after food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and then it ends there. And what the ESV is saying is that's the slogan that the Corinthians had, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, there's the quote, then Paul is responding to that by saying, and God will destroy both. That's one way of interpreting that. The NIV, to my knowledge, the newer NIV, which I think is a better way of interpreting this, puts the quotation mark after God will destroy both one and the other. So the NIV reads that the whole quote, the slogan that Paul is interacting with is, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other in the end. And that's the quote. That's the false thinking that the Corinthians held. It's hard to say, maybe even impossible to say, but I think that is the better interpretation, that that's the whole quote that Paul is arguing with, because what that quote is saying is, food is for the body and the body for food, food for the stomach, stomach for food, and God will destroy both, so do what you want. Like, I think that was the slogan, that was the Corinthian mindset that, We can just feed our appetites because our bodies will be destroyed by God in the end and it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. Our bodies are inconsequential. They're not all important. So who cares? Live it up. Eat what you want. Have sex with whom you want. Our bodies will be destroyed. Our bodies are temporary and ultimately insignificant. This was consistent with the philosophy of Plato. Uh, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not going to get too deep in this. But there's a platonic worldview that had dominated the thinking of the day. And according to Plato's philosophy, our physical world is only a shadow of the true reality, the abstract reality in our minds or in an immaterial plane. So this physical world is not the real. This physical world is just a shadow, but the real world is an immaterial place, a spiritual place. And this real place, you would call the place of forms, the reality. And every physical thing is an imperfect representation of the more perfect, real, abstract form. So this would apply to even inanimate objects, this pulpit here. It's just one pulpit, and it is an imperfect manifestation or representation of the perfect ideal of pulpit. It is an abstract idea. And carry it over to bodies. Our bodies are just an imperfect, finite representation, a shadow of what is more real, the real form 
of who we are. Our essence is not physical. That's kind of basic platonic thinking, and that had infected the church to, so that people thought that our bodies were just physical stuff, just something to be cast off, cast aside. And it's not essentially who we are. And bodies are not essential to us. Paul is contending with that and saying, actually, our bodies matter. Pun intended. Matter matters. In fact, your body and spirit are linked together. We know this to be true, just intuitively. Because when I want my children to listen to me, I don't want them playing games looking elsewhere. Because what they're doing with their bodies is tied to what they're doing with their minds and their spirits. There, I don't know if this is true, so don't quote me on this, but I, I saw this week, apparently a study was done, and it has been shown that the physical act of walking through a doorway causes memory lapses. <laughs> Which is why you go into another room of your house and forget what you were doing, right? <laughs> that there's something about that physical act of walking through a door that can trigger memory lapse. I don't know if it's true, I'm just going to go with it. But, scripturally, we know this to be true, though what we do with our bodies reflects what we're doing inside internally. This is why bowing before the Lord is seen all over the place, especially in prayer. Bowing was a physical act which reflected an internal reality that actually in the ancient world, why do you bow? You present your head, present your neck to your Lord saying, you can do what you want with me. You can slice off my head if you want. It's a way of subjugating yourself, the physical act, an act of submission. It reflected an internal reality. Our bodies and souls are linked together. So Paul says our bodies are significant. They're not just for serving our appetites. They're actually meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What he means by that is our bodies are designed to serve the Lord, and as we do so, the Lord will be good to our bodies. In fact, he will be eternally good to our bodies. Our bodies are meant to be with the Lord forever. And Paul goes back to the resurrection. Jesus himself was raised bodily. It wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. This is basic to Christianity. If you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. This is essential to Christianity that we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that his body was raised from the dead, physically raised. God raised up the Lord by his power, And if we are in Christ, we too will be raised. Our bodies will be resurrected to live with the Lord forever. Paul's saying our bodies are an integral part of who we are. And if that's the case, then what we do with our bodies matters. And what we do with our bodies is, in fact, spiritual. So we think about things like eating and exercise, and those are spiritual things. It's surprising to no one, I can admit that that's not an area of strength for me and has been a struggle for me all my life. How do I keep my body healthy, to eat well and exercise well? It's not something that comes naturally easily for me. 
And it took me time, and in fact, I'm still learning that what I do with my body is not just a physical thing, but a spiritual thing. That how I eat, how I sleep, is a spiritual exercise. And that doesn't just mean get in the best shape possible, because there is a way in which you can exercise and get in shape, and it is a total vanity project that has nothing to do with the Lord and has everything to do with your ego. But the point is, how we steward the bodies that have been given to us is a matter of worship and honoring the Lord. So Paul wants us to ask, how will you honor the Lord with your body? The world will tell you, your body is meant for pleasure, so live it up. Paul will tell you, and scripture will tell you, your body is meant for the Lord. Our bodies are intended not just for pleasure in this world, but eternal pleasure and joy in him. Think higher about our bodies. Second, first, our bodies are intended for heaven. Second, our bodies are united to Christ. Our bodies are united to Christ. That's what Paul says in verses 15 through 17. He talks about this mysterious one flesh union that occurs specifically in sexual intimacy. Our bodies are united to Christ. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I think there's ten times in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, do you not know? So he uses it a couple times here. Do you not know this basic Christian theology? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And notice he doesn't say, do you not know that you are members of Christ? He says specifically, your bodies are members of Christ. He's intentional about that. Physically, who you are in your body and soul, you are united to Jesus you and soul and body are members of Christ. If you have faith in him, you belong to him. There, there's something here about our union with God that I, I don't understand. I can't fully wrap my head around it, but I know it to be true that we are in Christ. Did you know there is a place in Scripture where Jesus specifically prays for us? There is a place where you can read Jesus Christ the Lord praying for you, praying for me, praying for his church. He has us in mind specifically. What does Jesus pray for when he prays for us specifically? It's found in John 17 in the upper room. He's meeting with his disciples. John 17, 20 and 21, Jesus says in his prayer, I do not ask for these only, so he's talking about his disciples, praying to the Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's you and me. He is praying for everybody who will believe in Jesus Christ through the word of the disciples, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here, Jesus' prayer, which I assume is answered by the Father. I believe when Jesus prays, the Father hears and affirms. They are aligned in their thinking. As one God, Jesus says, as I and the Father are one, that they, the church, Christians, may also be in me, and in fact, he says, in us. So in some way, you and I are united, not even just to Jesus Christ, but to the Trinity. That somehow, body and soul, when we come to faith in Christ, we are united to the triune God, having some type of intimate union with him forever that I will never fully understand, but I know to be true. And if that's true, Paul says, then should we be united to a prostitute? I don't think Paul just wants to pick specifically on prostitutes. It's probably true that that was the sin in question at the time, that there were members of the Corinthian church, probably the more financially well-to-do, who were using prostitutes as entertainment. So he's speaking specifically to that sin. But as we'll see, he's applying this to all sexual immorality. He's saying that when you do that, you are being united to that person in that sexual union. Should you take what is united to Jesus and the triune God, our holy union God, and then defile that with sexual morality? It should never be done. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And Paul says something truly important here that our world doesn't know. That sex is spiritual. That it is not just physical. But that there is a sexual u- or spiritual union or bond that is created. And Paul's not saying you're automatically married through sexual union. But there is a spiritual bond created through sexual acts. And that is exactly how God made it. That was his idea. It's not a bad thing. It's a glorious thing that God designed. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That in the act of sexual union, there is a spiritual union where the two become one. And why would God make sex that way? Why would he create this good thing and ordain it so? I don't know if I have the full answer, but I can guess that just as God experiences unity within himself, a three-in-one, he has created his image bearers to somehow experience a same kind of unity where multiple people become one, two become one. And God wants us as his image bearers to experience something of that goodness of unity and the most powerful way that is experienced is through sexual union. And I think beyond that, as image bearers, God wants us to know something of the joy and ecstasy he experiences in creation. As a creator God, as one who makes good things, he has made humans and designed us so that 
procreation, that act, is a transcendent experience and reality. Sex, by God's design, is spiritual. So this is something I tell couples in counseling and premarital, that sex is not just physical. So if you want a good sexual life, it's not just about getting in shape, which doesn't hurt, but that's not what it's all about. If you want a good sexual life, that will come through spiritual alignment. Because it's a spiritual thing. It is vulnerable, emotional, and powerful. Sex carries with it a spiritual element. This is why things like sexual assault are so damaging. It's why sexual assault can bring on such destructive feelings of isolation and shame and false guilt. Because the sexual act is not just physical. Being sexually assaulted is different than being punched in the face. There's something else going on there. Something more transcendent. That's why people who are abused have a hard time talking about it. Why it can be so destructive and why we as a church should be especially sensitive to those who have been victims of sexual assault. If I may get myself in trouble, I'll say I was often embarrassed by many Christians' response to the Me Too movement. Many were dismissive or derisive or mocking of it. Yes, certainly there were elements that were politicized or not always expressed in good faith, which is especially shameful because of the destructive nature of sexual assault. But that aside, if anyone should be sensitive to the danger and harm of sexual assault, it should be Christians who understand that sex isn't just physical. We, of all people, should be sensitive to the spiritual consequences of physical intimacy, especially when that is violated. We know that there is a transcendent reality to this. The devil and the world do a funny thing with sex, making it both too much and too little. I would say the world thinks too highly of sex and too lowly at the same time. Too highly, because sex is promoted everywhere as if it's the only way to fulfillment, as if it has to be God, and the world bows down to it, and at the same time says it's just physical. The world thinks too highly and too lowly of sex at the same time, but we who understand scripture, understand that it is a physical and spiritual union not to be worshipped, not the only path of fulfillment, not necessary to be human, but a good gift from God, which has a certain glory when used rightly. 
Why? Because there's one flesh, a union, and we are united to Christ. It's the second truth that should dictate how we use our bodies. And lastly, in verses 18 through 20, our bodies are the domain of God. Our bodies are dwelling places of the Spirit of God and are indeed purchased possessions of God. Our bodies are the domain of God. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So here Paul gets to his application point in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality, and notice he doesn't just say flee from using a prostitute. Because his scope is bigger than that. That was the incident that he was speaking to, but the principle is far broader. Flee from sexual immorality. And porneia is the word. Flee from anything that is sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. That's how scripture views sexual morality. Don't flirt with it. Don't try and manage it. Don't pretend you can... uh, mess around with it, but flee. And he may even have in his mind Joseph and Potiphar's wife, right? And Joseph fled from that. Flee because sexual sin is unique from other sins in the way it involves the body. Paul says every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So sexual sin is a uniquely bodily thing, and This verse has puzzled commentators forever. Because all sorts of sins are bodily. How is murder outside the body? How is gluttony outside the body? That's against your own body. Self-harm, those things are bodily. Like, how is sex unique in the way it's bodily? It's actually kind of a hard verse to understand. What is Paul getting at here? What does he mean? Well, I think he's getting back to that idea that sexual sin is different because it's a way in which two people are united together that just doesn't occur with any other kind of sin. Um, I'll actually quote the infamous heretic Pelagius. He commented on this verse. He said, Fornication multiplies sins because two people are involved and both perish together. There's a way in which sexual sin unites sinners in sinning. It multiplies sin and unites people uniquely in that one flesh union in a powerful way that just isn't true of other sins. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. That only sexual sin establishes this union. So Paul says it is particularly pernicious. So flee from it because you are a holy people and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Do you not know, Paul says again, here's a basic thing you should know as a Christian, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. A fundamental mind-blowing truth of the Christian faith, you as a Christian are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now this is where we get that phrase, right? Your body is a temple. And how do most people use that? Most people use that to say, your body is a temple, it's sacred, so... Fun, fundamentally or functionally, idolatrize it. Like, make it perfect. Your body is a temple. Like, you hear that in gyms more than church, probably. But that's not what Paul's thinking. 
Paul's saying not that your body itself is holy, but the fact that it is a vessel for the Holy Spirit. Paul is thinking in biblical theological terms. He's referring back to the temple. What was the temple in Israel? The temple was the place where God dwelled. It was a place that housed the Holy Spirit. And the temple, because it housed the Holy Spirit, was holy. And you could not enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple. There was one person who could do it, the high priest, once a year. And before doing that, he had to sacrifice animals for the sake of his sins and the sins of the people. And only then dare he enter the Holy of Holies because it's such a holy, refined, other kind of place, the temple. And to destroy the temple would be blasphemous because that is where God dwelled. And then Jesus comes along and does something totally insane to the people at the time. He says, actually, that, that temple, that's me. The temple will be destroyed in three days. I will raise it up. And he's talking about him in, in his resurrection, and Jesus himself being the temple. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwelled in Jesus Christ, and wherever he went, that's where God was. If you want to meet with God, you used to be you have to go to the temple in Israel, now you just go to Jesus. And then something crazier happens in Christian theology and history. Jesus ascends, and what does he do? He sends out the Holy Spirit to the church, but now the church has the Holy Spirit in them, And now we as Christians can say God lives in and dwells with us, that we are houses of the Holy Spirit. Your body, therefore, is a temple of the Holy Spirit where God dwells. God lives in you. You have a permanent resident, if you are a Christian, who is God himself. Now let me ask you, if God lives within you, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, is your body your own? Do you have freedom to do whatever you want with it? Our culture worships at the altar of personal autonomy. You can't tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want with myself. Christians think differently. We're free to do what we want, but we want to do what is in line with God because God dwells in us. We have the Holy Spirit within us. So Paul says, you are not your own. You don't have personal autonomy just to do whatever you want. Your body is not meant for feeding your appetites. Your body is meant for worship. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And beyond that, not only does the Holy Spirit dwell in you, God owns you. God has purchased you. You were bought. With what price? As 1 Peter 2.16 tells us, not with worthless things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You were purchased by the body of of Jesus Christ, crucified on a cross for you. And two things happened when God purchased you, when God bought you. You were freed from your former master. You were freed, this is redemption, freed from a former cruel master, which was sin and death and the devil. You were freed from that master. And then secondly, you now have a new master. So the New Testament teaches that you are free and also not free because in Christ you are a slave of God. He now owns you. I'm sure you've all driven around and seen a restaurant and it says, under new management. And the implication is, 
the old guys messed this up. We'll do better. New owners, new way of doing things, new staff, under new management. You can trust us now. We who are in Christ are under new management. Used to be enslaved to sin, now servants of the living God, sons of God, living for him. We are under new management. He owns us. So you are not free just to do what you want with your own body, but you are free to do that which aligns with your owner, God himself. So glorify God in your body. And there's the general principle. If you want to know what you should do with your bodies, what glorifies your owner? What brings worship and praise to the living God? That is what we should do. You are free to serve him with your body. And Paul's given us three truths that show us that who we are in Christ determines how we use our bodies. Our bodies are intended for heaven. They're not meant to just feed every sinful appetite. Our bodies are united to Christ. So that should determine how we use them and who we unite our bodies with. And three, our bodies are the domain of God. He indwells us and he possesses us. So glorify him. And all this, I want to make one last note before we close. This is important. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Consider this. Verse 20 says, you were bought with a price. Consider when. It's an important question. When were you bought by God, purchased by Jesus Christ? You could answer it a couple different ways. One, you were bought with a price over 2,000 years ago. When Christ died on that cross, you, in all your sinfulness, were already purchased before you had done anything right or wrong, God had already bought you by the blood of his son. Meaning, he knew what you were going to do. And if you're a sexual sinner like we all are in this room, if you're sexually broken, know that God knows and knew and purchased you anyway. You could also answer this question, when were we bought? And we were bought when we came to faith in Jesus Christ. And when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we find we were already purchased, as Romans 5, 8 is very clear. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the point. Your sin, even serious sexual sin, serious sin that you've done with your body, need not, should not, and cannot keep you from the love of God. So you need not feel shame or like you have to keep your distance from God. God didn't keep his distance from you. In fact, he sent his son down so that he might save sexual sinners like you and me. He isn't afraid or ashamed to be associated with you. 
He doesn't look the other way. You need not feel any guilt or shame either if you are in Jesus Christ. God has been purifying and redeeming his bride all along, taking sinful people, washing them clean, and then presenting them as his crown jewel to the world saying, look at her. God is proud to call you his people and people of his possession. So don't let sexual sin keep you away from God because God doesn't let it keep you away from him. Christ died to bring you into perfect, intimate union with God, which, by the way, is what we've wanted all along. That's what that desire is all about, to be known and loved in perfect vulnerability and intimacy. And that's what God provides in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we praise you for the goodness of sex as you have created it and ordained it, the goodness of our bodies as you have made them, our eternal union with you, uh, purchased by Jesus Christ, fulfilled and empowered by your Spirit, uh, that we, body and soul, might live forever with you. Lord, there are things about this we don't understand and never will but we can glory in them. Help us, Lord, to think highly and rightly about our bodies and how we use them to worship and bring praise to you because you have loved us first and purchased us by your Son. May we give praise to you in all things. Amen.